either off or silent or some setting that will make sure it does not disturb our speaker. Well, in his newest book, tonight's speaker introduces us to a George Washington we rarely meet. By nature shy and reserved, the brand new president decided that he would visit the new citizens in their own states, that only by showing himself could he make them feel a part of a new nation. Washington made four grueling trips to all 13 states. He displayed himself as victorious general and as president and drew on his immense popularity, even hero worship, to send a powerful and lasting message that America was now a nation, not a collection of states. Through a look at Washington's journey, we come to understand why George Washington is the indispensable founding father. Timothy H. Breen was the founding director of the Nicholas D. Shabriah Center for Historical Studies and the William Smith Mason Professor of American History at Northwestern University. He is currently the James Marsh Professor at Large at the University of Vermont. He has taught at Oxford University, Cambridge University, and the California Institute of Technology. He is the respected author of a dozen books including Tobacco Culture, The Mentality of the Great Tidewater Planters on the Eve of Revolution, American Insurgents, American Patriots, The Revolution of the People, and the subject of tonight's lecture, George Washington's Journey, The President Forges a New Nation. And he has the distinction, I don't think I've ever introduced a speaker that can say this, of having an essay of his, Making History, a study of the end of slavery in Massachusetts, transformed into a full-length opera entitled Slipknot. So, please give a warm VHS operatic welcome to Timothy Breen. Thank you for that uh, generous uh, introduction, and I promise I will not sing a note. Um, you know, you all come complain about how cold it is. <laughs> I, live, I live 40 miles south of the Canadian border. This is a summer day. <laughs> but I, uh, but I, uh, I understand uh, watching folks in their winter clothes uh, down here. I think maybe it's, it's moisture down here, but the, the cold does bite you. I've spent a lot of my life in Virginia, never, never lived here permanently. I'm not a Virginian, but I've written several books about Virginia, about the first African-American community, mine own ground. Uh, we're talking about the 1640s and then the tobacco culture about uh, the great planters who tried to figure out how to make a living on a very difficult crop uh, at the time of the revolution. And I thought, uh, well, that was maybe the end of Virginia for me. I moved on to uh, writing about other things, but then I was pulled back uh, by George Washington, a powerful figure. Um, and uh, wrote this book that I'm going to discuss a little bit with you tonight, uh, George Washington's uh, Journey. I will say that in all the books that I wrote about Virginia or anywhere else, this book was the most fun for me uh, to, to write because among other things, uh, I reconstructed the journey myself, going on roads that had changed its names, trying to find houses that had moved, uh, and came to an understanding, as you'll see in my comments tonight, uh, not only uh, of what 
America was like in 1789, 90, uh, but also what the first president brought to office that I think has been underappreciated. So I aim to depict for you this evening, and thank you for so many of you to come out. I really appreciate that. I want to depict a president that you may not know. The Washington that I'm going to describe for you is a man of extraordinary political vision, a gifted innovator, a person who understood as powerfully as any subsequent uh, president of the United States that our government is based ultimately on the will of the people. And during his first years as president of this country, indeed during the first months of office, this diffident, often a socially awkward man, opened the door to a level of popular participation in the political culture of the time that no one would have predicted, especially coming from Washington. Because this man invited many people who could not vote, women as well as men, uh, poorer Americans, Northerners as well as Southerners, to give their voice to thoughts about the future of the country through a vehicle that we now know as public opinion. And so at the very start of our nation's history, Washington devised a plan to bring the new federal government to the people, directly to the people, in an act that still shapes our own expectations about the political process that we uh, live under. Washington decided quite on his own to take a journey to a new nation in the first days of his presidency. Now, I am going to make a, a large claim. Let me say in a way of introduction that over the last several years, I feel that I have gotten to know Washington uh, very well. The audiences, I notice, become alarmed at that point. Uh, they think that perhaps I know about crystal rocks or Ouija boards, but um, Washington never directly talked to me. But um, <laughs> while I was researching this book, uh, I traveled with him. I drove, or I tried to drive, the same roads as the president, several thousand miles, with a little more insurance that I knew where he was going than he did once 200 years ago. And one moment of my uh, trip stands out for me, a moment that I'd like to share, when I discovered uh, wh why or the ways that many contemporaries both admired and respected Washington so much. If you follow his diaries, and I'm told that the Virginia Historical Society has in manuscript one of these wonderful diaries Washington kept. It's a, it's a, a wonderful document that I'm told is on display to the public, terrific. Uh, many of them are now published, as you expect. But if you follow his diaries, you will learn that on May 1st, 1791, uh, Washington left Georgetown, South Carolina uh, for Charleston. The roads of that region in that part of the year were very poor. The scenery was boring. He reported in that diary that apparently is in this building that everywhere he saw was sand and pine barrens with very few inhabitants. In part, uh, to break the monotony, Washington decided to pay a visit to a great rice plantation called Hampton. It was a manor house of associated with the, some of the great, most powerful families of South Carolina, the Pinckneys and the Horries. 
It was originally built in 1730. The Hampton is located uh, then and now a few miles off the main road. When Washington arrived, he was greeted uh, on the veranda by three very powerful South Carolina women, Elijah Pinckney, that some of you may know um, as a, uh, an experimenter with the crop of indigo, uh, and also her daughter was there, Harriet uh, Horry, who was the widow of a man that was killed during the Revolution. And after breakfast, Washington and Mrs. Horry took a short walk around the grounds, perhaps to spark conversation. She informed the president that she intended <clears throat> to cut down the tree you see here, because in her estimation, it obstructed the view of people coming to Hampton when they drove up the driveway and they saw the tree, but not the house. Washington dissented. He strongly disagreed with the plan, and he reportedly said at that moment, Mrs. Horry, let it stay. It can do no harm where it is, and I would not think of cutting it down. His intervention saved the tree. The tree was then, this is a live oak, several hundred years ago, years old. It's still there if you want to visit the tree, and I can tell you as a historian, there is a thrill of, of, of having contact with a living object that was also touched by the man I was studying, and it is still there, now about 500 years old. And it stands in front of the porch, a survival, beautiful, healthy, still competing for the mansion with, uh, uh, for visibility. And for me, it's a link for, um, uh, there, it, there it is today. Great. It's called, by the way, if you're down there in South Carolina, it's called the, the Washington Oak, appropriately. Well, the story uh, reminds us that throughout his long career, Washington repeatedly demonstrated an enviable ability to listen, to observe, to take counsel, to change his mind, to grow, as he accepted ever more demanding public responsibilities. By my count, maybe you would have a different one, but my count, he saved our country three times. Two are familiar to all of you. We learn it in school. But by keeping the Continental Army together for so many years, an army that suffered many setbacks and was seldom supported by the Congress of the United States, Washington kept the hope of independence alive. Had he not, during the war, become, if he, he, had he become despondent, had he lost faith with the American cause, we certainly would not have defeated Great Britain and been an independent country. That's one. Second, at Newburgh, New York, in 1783, at the end of the war, the soldiers, the officers, were very disgruntled because they had not been paid, and they threatened a coup to uh, uh, push Congress to pay them properly. Uh, the coup was led by uh, that now hip-hop star Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> uh, but it was Washington that saved the day because he reminded the young impetuous Hamilton in words that we should all remember, the army is a dangerous thing to play with in politics. So that's two. But the third, probably you're not aware of, uh, you will be when you read my absolutely stunningly brilliant book, <laughs> uh, 
it's not surprising. It's a aspect that has been little little studied, has been treated mostly as a curiosity, but it is a mistake. Because without prodding from his more bookish colleagues, one thinks of Adams, uh, Madison, uh, Jay, Hamilton, the President of the United States on his own came to appreciate more than they did that a person who owed his office to the people, whose very claim to authority derived from the people, had to make himself accessible to those people. The challenge lay at the very heart of a new Republican system of government. It was this insight, this sense of responsibility, that compelled Washington literally to take to the road. And between the year 1789 and 1791, Washington organized several journeys which carried him to all 13 original states. I'm very sad to say that he intended to visit Vermont, but a blizzard stopped him. <laughs> but he made all the other 13, the 13 original ones. The travel, of course, was extremely difficult, involving several thousands of miles on very rough roads. And on at least two occasions, Washington almost had fatal accidents crossing water. Uh, and one can only imagine what the country's history would have been like if in the first year of his presidency, he'd been killed in a road accident. The first trip uh, took him from Mount Vernon in this state to New York City for his inauguration as president. And it covered the middle states uh, Maryland, Delaware, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey. Later that year, in 1789, he visited New England, then a region of the country, region of the country which, despite its revolutionary heritage, harbored serious doubts about the prerogatives of the new federal government. Washington took another brief trip to Rhode Island in 1790, an action designed chiefly to solidify support from a state that had and taken an embarrassing long time to ratify the Constitution. And then the most arduous journey to the South began in the spring of 1791. It lasted several months and left the daily business of government in the hands of cabinet members who were not too sure how they would ever reach the president if there was an emergency. Uh, and it was never uh, decided what he would have done. Washington, as president, explained why he put up with all these hardships in a letter written in 1791. Uh, he observed, it was among my first determinations when I took upon the duties of my present office to visit every part of the United States in the course of my administration. This is a typical Washington terse statement. Uh, he was a laconic correspondent but it hardly communicated the breadth of his vision. Indeed, one has to be careful not to take Washington's actions for granted. From a modern perspective, of course, we expect our presidents to interact with the people wherever they happen to live. Presidents are forever complaining about being trapped in Washington or the Capitol, and they, they claim that they need to go out to the states and relax and renew themselves. The point is Washington understood this need of communication as the very first months of his presidency. And whatever else you may think of that man, he was a gifted political innovator, as, and I suppose that's the core of what we call leadership. 
Of course, gaining a more accurate intelligence about the state of the nation was only part of Washington's decision to travel to the country. He understood, as I suspect most of us have forgotten, that the threads, the threads that bound the American people into a single shared political identity were fragile and untested. Washington, even more than some of his learned colleagues, sensed how much the new government of the United States was still an experiment. He was painfully aware that he operated in an uncertain political environment. Every act he made, every decision he made, provided a precedent that would lock in subsequent presidents. And in January 1790, in an unusually, for Washington, reflective letter to Catherine Macaulay, who some of you will recognize was one of the most popular historians in England at the time, Washington's confessed, the establishment of our new government seemed to be the last great experiment promoting human happiness by creating a reasonable compact of civil society. And he continued in this remarkable letter, few who are not philosophical spectators can realize the difficulty and the delicacy in which a man in my situation has to act. And then he ended this letter with this very interesting quotation, in our progress towards political happiness, my station is new, and if I may use the expression, I walk on untrodden ground. And so he did. The success, the survival of the new federal government was by no means assured when Washington assumed the presidency. He understood, as I suspect again, most of us, and that includes me, had forgotten, most revolutions end badly. After the battle is over, oftentimes factions, coups, new constitutions, chaos ensues. Washington understood that. He knew that the revolution, the goals of the revolution, had not yet been solidified. And for most Americans in 1789, the Constitution remained in abstraction. Oh, some of them may have followed the ratifying conventions, but you could not say that they had yet formed the emotional ties with the federal government that we might recognize either as the stuff of nationalism or patriotism. That had to develop slowly. So when Marston took office in 1789, the political horizons of most people remained intensely local, seldom extending beyond the border of their own states. By taking the federal government to the people, Washington not only enhanced the legitimacy of a strong new central government, but also helped ordinary American people on the road to comprehend that the United States was more than the sum of its parts, that it had to be more than the sum of its parts. Now this apprehensive, this worry, this anxious figure, one that thought that he was walking on untrodden ground is not the Washington most of us are familiar with, the Washington that we learned about in school. Few historians of the New Republic have ever described him as a bold innovator or a daring risk taker. 
He's usually depicted, especially during his earliest years of the presidency, as a, a somewhat, somewhat wooden person who uh, had admirable personal integrity, but alas, did not inspire human innocence or deep affection. He was sort of like the nice uncle that showed up at Christmas and didn't cause a problem. He receives a credit for recruiting Hamilton and Jefferson to his cabinet and managing to work productively with Madison, who was then writing or drafting the Bill of Rights. So that in such brilliant company, Washington usually, in most history books, recedes into the background, becoming a kind of a well-meaning figure who did his best to keep his dysfunctional colleagues from uh, making a public embarrassment. It was this uh, genial Washington who uh, convinced Mason Locke Weems, otherwise known to you as Parson Weems, to reimagine Washington's life story. In Weems's uh, famous Life of Washington, published in 1800, just a year after Washington's death, Weems, who, as a matter of fact, was not a parson, but he took that name because he knew it would help him sell books <laughs> when he traveled around with his little wagon. Weems tried to make his subject more exciting, more dynamic, even if it meant inventing tales whole cloth, such as cutting down little cherry tree or throwing silver dollars across whole rivers. Here we have one of the surviving pictures of the period, as you can see, of uh, George uh, telling uh, his father um, that he had murdered this tree or was about to. Um, it didn't matter that uh, Washington's father died when Washington was uh, only nine years old and could not have had this conversation, but there you go. The point is that more modern historians, sometimes uh, distancing themselves from pure fabrication, of course, still are a little grumpy when they find that Washington uh, bores them or seems uh, a little too diffident for their taste. Now, it is true that any attempt to transform Washington into a polished conversationalist with uh, knowledge about uh, dancing and wine and reading is a non-starter. He was not a Jefferson. Nevertheless, Washington's awkwardness in social situations should not serve as a reason to diminish for us his genuine talents, his genuine accomplishments. Unlike Jefferson, unlike Adams, Washington had little interest in theory. He brought instead a no-nonsense pragmatism to the president. He was fundamentally a man of action. To understand his brilliance, one has to follow his feet rather than his table talk. As Washington observed himself in 1797, with me, it has always been a maximum rather to let my designs appear from my works than by my expressions. That's one of the great insights into this man. And so we encounter, on the eve of his acceptance of the presidency of the United States of Washington, wrestling with real political problems, real perceived dangers, confronting a situation that by his lights demanded action. What may we, what may we ask was the source 
of his decision to tour the nation? The answer lies in part in Washington's conviction that the revolution had not yet yielded a government capable of responding to the pressing needs of a new struggling republic. Much has been made of Washington's fear that the society itself was coming undone, indeed that the victory over the British had unloosed an anarchy in America. There's a grain of truth in that. After Washington retired from the army and returned to Mount Vernon, he received regularly disturbing reports from trusted friends that the country during the 1780s was indeed falling apart. None were more alarming than the letters from John Jay. I'll tell you, if you're any historians, you want to get depressed, just read John Jay's correspondence. I don't think he ever had a bright thought. And he, <laughs> and he wrote all of this to Washington all the time. What I fear most, Jay wrote, is that the better kind of people, by which I mean the people who are orderly and industrious, who are content with their situations and not uneasy in their circumstances, will be led by the insecurity of property, the loss of confidence in our rulers, the want of public faith to consider the charms of liberty as imaginary. In other words, you know, too much freedom has lost its appeal or it's become a danger. Washington hated this kind of self-serving anti-Republican talk. It was not simply because he rejected authoritarian rule out of hand, but also because he always had a strong, positive vision for what America could become is if, it is, if only his fellow citizens would rise to the challenge. Washington never lost faith in the people. But he knew if there were problems, he knew who was to blame. In his estimation, and this will surprise many of you, in Washington's estimation, the problem during the 1780s was the states. Centers of the most parochial politics where local demagogues build up factions that threatened the stability and called into question the greatness of our country. My opinion, he declared in the year 1786, is that there is more wickedness than ignorance in the conduct of our states, or in other words, in the conduct of those who have too much influence on the fabrication of our laws. Repeatedly, even when he was most disturbed about the direction of the country, Washington put his faith in the people. If they only knew the truth, if they were only informed about Republican government, they could break out from the spell of local demagogues and they would realize in their lives the full potential of our country. He insisted for anyone who would listen that the strong central government would bring them greater military security from imperial powers that were predatory, a greater chances of developing properly the immense resources that this country possessed, and then a greater ability to protect their rights from states all too eager to trample on the basic rights in the name of local sovereignty, rights, security, 
prosperity. That's the, that's the message that Washington wanted to bring to the people, the core of his, his driving sense of responsibility. And during the late 1780s, in order to advance his agenda, he put first his trust in the ratification of the Constitution. Now, even though that final document did not reduce state powers as much as he and Madison had hoped, Washington was willing to take half a loaf as better than none. The Constitution, in his words, represented an advance for the federal interest and the glory of the American nation. And I have here a couple of interesting slides that appeared in newspapers. Um, this, this is the Lord shining his lights down on the little temple of the United States. And on the bottom of this little temple, it says, we, we the people. And this is, as each state came on board, uh, this is uh, from uh, New Hampshire, uh, the little pillars rise. They don't fall down. They come back up. All right, we'll, we'll come to that in a second. So as even as 11 states ratified the Constitution, as I say, North Carolina and Rhode Island took their time, Washington understood that the battle with the states, with local, often narrow and selfish interests, was not over. And in this battle, Washington understood that he was the only person in the country capable of leading the new country. That sounds horribly arrogant, but it was not because he was immodest or uh, braggadocio. He was none of that. But like other great revolutionaries over the centuries, one thinks of Gandhi, you might think of Mandela, Washington sensed that he possessed what we now call charisma. In a very real sense, in the year 1789, he was the nation. His very person had come to symbolize the aspirations of a new republic. As his good friend Colonel David Humphreys explained to Washington early in the year 1789, it will be found that the very existence of government will be much endangered if the person placed at the head of it should not possess the entire confidence, both of its friends and its adversaries. Well, Humphrey knew that Washington had that backing from the people. From all the treatment you have ever experienced from the people of this continent, you have the right to believe that they entertain a good opinion of your abilities, and so they do. Did, you might remember that Washington was the only person that was elected unanimously president of the United States by the Electoral College. It's never been duplicated. It never will, I fear. It was on this trip from Mount Vernon to New York City that Washington first glimpsed how to turn inquiet and vague, even misinformed feelings about the nation into a, a powerful new commitment for a strong federal union. The journey started unpropitiously. When Washington left Mount Vernon, he was in a very dark mood. He, he left his Virginia home, as he told Humphrey in a statement, if my appointment to the presidency and the acceptance of it is inevitable. 
I fear I must bid adieu to happiness, for I see nothing but clouds and darkness before me, and I call God to witness that the day which shall carry me again into public life will be the most distressing one I have ever known. And he'd had some pretty distressing days. But providentially, the personal clouds and the darkness soon cleared. And on the road north from Virginia to the capital of the United States, Washington met the people. He met the people of the United States. Before his trip, they had been something of an abstraction, but now he saw huge crowds of men and women cheering wildly, wildly proclaiming their support for the new republic. Here on the road, he began to comprehend fully the power of public opinion in our Republican society, the spontaneous celebration in town after town seemed to initially to have taken Washington by surprise. There were, of course, elite dinners and receptions of the well-born, powerful, but what he saw also in the road were the ordinary people, ordinary Americans, who came forth in unprecedented large number to see their chief. The crowds, the fireworks, the special songs that were written for the occasion, the stunning illuminations, every window in the town lit with a candle. All these were testimonies of the fact that the people were willing to tell Washington how he fitted into their own stories about the meaning of the United States. Now, witnessing from his carriage the repeated enthusiastic expressions of popular support, he may have sensed how much the character of public life had changed since the Revolution. The quiet deference of those earlier colonial times had now turned into raucous receptions in every town, noisy welcomes and more. Washington discovered that his own ability to convey a message of hope about the future of the country depended on this newly empowered public. He listened, they listened. So instead of rejecting the people, as one might have thought this man would do, instead of running away from change, he figured out how to incorporate the American public into his own mission to secure a strong federal government. And so Washington on that trip began a conversation with a broader American public that still goes on to this day. Now several incidents on the road to New York catch our attention. At a crossing near Philadelphia over the Schuylkill River known as Gray's Ferry Bridge, a group commissioned a, a celebration, a celebratory display that was put on by the great American artist Charles Wilson Peel. He, he decorated the bridge in anticipation for Washington. And the, real, the results clearly impressed many people who came to witness the events, the huge crowds. One reviewer claimed that Peel accomplished something, and I quote, that even the pencil of Raphael could not delineate. That struck me as a little over the top, but uh, <laughs> the artists did weave together a jumble of symbols that served not only to welcome Washington, but also more important, to celebrate what we should celebrate, the creation of this new 
Federal Republic. On, on each of the four corners of the bridge, this is, this is the, the bridge, and the, the, there's four corners. Um, I'll explain. Um, this is, the, these, this is a drawing from the time. This is not something later. On each of the four corners of the bridge, Peel placed a flag, which consisted of a painted image or a motto on a piece of cloth. One flag depicted, and I quote, a rising sun more than half above the horizon. This country's going to have a future, and they carry the motto, the rising empire. And then another corner, the flag said, a new era. And on a third, Peel placed on a very high pole the cap of liberty, which, if you know your 18th century, the cap of liberty was one of the most radical insignias of French Revolution, Thomas Paine. And the fourth flag urged, may commerce flourish. But the invent of Peel was not done. Over the bridge, he erected a magnificent arch emblematic of the ancient triumphal arches used by the Romans. And I, I guess this is that, that arch. Washington had to ride under that arch to cross the bridge. And when he got to the middle of the bridge, a young woman named Angelica, who happened to be Peel's daughter, uh, jumped out and said hello to the president, and uh, he stopped. And according to a newspaper report, I read, as our beloved Washington passed the bridge, then a lad, beautifully ornamented with sprigs of laurel in his head, assisted by certain mysterious machinery, let drop above our hero's head, unperceived by him, a crown of laurel. Basically, what happened, he got here, and some kid hidden up here dropped this, this laurel thing on the president. Well, Washington seems to have been a little embarrassed. He pushed the uh, crown, uh, crown aside, no doubt, uh, knowing that an elected head of state uh, would have no business wearing a crown. But the next quotation from the president, from the newspaper at the time captures the inclusive quality of this wonderful moment in our history. All classes and descriptions of citizens discovered the most undisguised attachment and unbounded zeal for our dear chief, and I may add, under God, the savior of our country. Not all the pomp of majesty, not even imperial dignity itself, surrounded with its usual splendor and magnificence, could, could equal this interesting scene. And on he rode. Through Philadelphia and the great crowds and the illuminated candles, the adoring people, on to Trenton, where he carried out years before his most impressive raid on the night of uh, turning back the Hessians. And there he became, uh, came across another triumphal arch. This is that triumphal arch. And there's the president riding his white horse along. A local committee of women had constructed 
the arch and 13 columns, uh, one for each state. They ignored the fact that Rhode Island and North Carolina weren't there yet. Then on the arch, in gilt lettering, appeared the word, the defender of the mothers will defend the daughters. And even more poignant was a large artificial sunflower, which a newspaper explained, always pointing to the sun. It was designed to express this motto to you alone as emblematic of the affections and the hopes of the people that are directed to him under the united suffrage of millions of Americans. This is a close-up. Again, these, these are the, one of the few surviving portraits of, of this trip that I put together. And this is a 19th century romantic, somewhat treacly um, thought of the mothers saying he's going to protect the daughters. Uh, I suspect it was a little bit more Spartan, in fact. As the new president of the United States, um, Washington reflected on the meaning of these events, and within weeks of his inauguration, he circulated a memo to his cabinet and to his vice president, John Adams. And it's this document that we see Washington as an original thinker, a man who was a man of action in a new political environment. It was written during a, a controversy that I won't go into when Adams foolishly tried to burden Washington with a silly title of his majesty or his great leader. Washington wanted to be called what he was, the president. Washington asked in this very important memo, whether during the research of Congress it would not be advantageous to the interest of the Union for the President to make a tour of the United States in order to become better acquainted with the principal characters in internal circumstances, as well as to be more accessible to numbers of well-informed persons who might give the President useful information and advices about political subjects. To, to no one's surprise, Adams had no idea what Washington was suggesting. He answered this memo. <clears throat> a tour might no doubt be made with great advantage to the public, but I don't know if time can be spared. It seemed unlikely to Adams, after all, as he said to Washington, you know, foreign affairs arrive every day and the business of the executive and the judicial departments require your constant attention. In fact, he concluded, Adams did, the president's residence should be confined to one place. But even as Adams wrote these words, he sensed that he was out of step with this new political world that Washington understood. Even as he urged Washington to stay in the capital of the United States, which at the time was New York, he wrote, my long residence in, in Europe may have impressed me with a view of things incomparable to the present temper or feeling of, the fel of our fellow citizens. But Washington was in tune with his fellow citizens. And other members of Washington's circle and cabinet urged him to go on. They were sympathetic. Madison, quote, saw no impropriety of my proposed trip. 
And the president discussed the whole matter as he discussed all kinds of important things with Hamilton. Hamilton, and I quote, thought it a very desirable plan and advised accordingly. And so early on a wet and cold morning on October 15, 1789, Washington set off for a journey to the new country, to a new people. He set out to discover America. The first goal was to see New England, as, or as he called them then, the Eastern States, Washington sat in his coach. His two personal secretaries were with him, Major William Jackson and Tobias Lear, rode by, beside the vehicle, as did several members of the cabinet. Hamilton was there, Jay, Henry Knox. They were followed by a baggage cart driven by Paris, a slave that Washington had brought from, to New York from Mount Vernon. And it contained all the changes of clothes that were necessary to carry off this grand political theater. By 11 o'clock, the rain had stopped. The little cavalcade had reached Knightsbridge, now part of the Bronx. Hamilton and the others had already turned back to the city. According to Washington's diary, the party now included Major Jackson, Mr. Lear, myself, and six servants. They dined at the home of Mrs. Uh, Caleb Hoyle, and then they pushed on to Rye, New York, where they stayed, according to the diary, in a very neat and decent inn run by Mrs. Haviland. That night, that first night, the post road to Connecticut, to New Haven, to Hartford, to Boston, to America lay before them. The road to America was there. And it was on this stage on which Washington would perform his presidency for the American people and for us. It was this road that would save the country from debilitating localism, would save the American people from the trumpets of demagogues that would say we should divide ourselves as a country. Many Americans did not listen to Washington, I understand. Hartford wanted to succeed from the Union. There was the Confederacy, there was talk of secession every time some group doesn't get its way. But Washington urged us to think of ourselves as a united country. The Union comes first for all of us. Thank you. There were an indispensable man, I suppose Washington is he. Um, along his journey, did he make speeches, public speeches to the people that had gathered and to the uh, state legislators, his message of uh, federal union? Yes, there was a kind of uh, what I call a welcoming ritual. It almost has uh, echoes of the Middle Ages. When he um, would reach a town, the town fathers would uh, pen a drafted document of welcome, usually talking about how happy they were to see the president, of course, but sometimes uh, rehearsing local issues that they uh, were concerned about. And then Washington would uh, respond to these uh, local folks that came out so that from his, the point of his arrival, there was a 
a conversation between the president and the local local groups. That was part of it. And most of these were published in newspapers um, so that if you lived in Boston or you lived in Charleston, you could follow the trip in your newspapers and see uh, the welcoming talk from the town and his response. I know that when James Monroe was president, he had a very successful and popular tour uh, of the country. But did, did Adams or did uh, Jefferson or Madison ever try any similar tours? Uh, the, no, I, I don't. Uh, I think Monroe was the, the next one that did it. And then, of course, uh, the most famous tour of the 19th century was Lafayette who came back in the, in the 1820s. And there, I, I think uh, to some extent Lafayette was uh, aware of Washington's er earlier trip, although his, his Lafayette's was much more elaborate. He went out to the, the West. But as you know, Lafayette and Washington were very, very close. And I, I can't imagine he would not have, in a sense, wanted to uh, give some sort of praise or homage to uh, George Washington. I've heard that there's, in reading, that there's signs Washington slept here. Yes. I've never seen them. Did you run into any of them or historically uh, find well, any of those? Uh, and uh, there are oftentimes a number of uh, you know, roadside markers that Washington slept here. Um, most of those um, don't come from this trip. They come from the period of the revolution itself when uh, certainly from Virginia all the way up to Massachusetts, Washington, you spent many, many, many uh, nights there. Uh, you didn't ask this question, but I'll answer it anyway. Um, Washington uh, insisted that as president of a new republic, run for and by the people, paid for by the people, that um, he would only stay in public inns, taverns, ordinaries. And people at times said, well, that, that's, that's really noble of you because some of these are not so great, but nevertheless, you're, you're a public servant. And he did, he, he, he did as much as he could. Uh, but in his private diary that I think this gentleman has in a vault somewhere, uh, the private diary says, well, you know, a lot of these taverns were really terrible. Uh, the food was awful. There were bugs. The beds were short. Uh, it was miserable. As I say, it's sort of like a trip advisor for the presidency. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but the public uh, thought that he uh, suffered nobly for the republic. I just wanted to ask a question about his attire because it seems he was very uh, cognizant of his appearance to the people, mm -hmm. and um, what he—I think he wore his military <clears throat> uniform for the whole thing. Could you comment on that, please? Sure. Uh, he was. I mean, as um, I indicated, in the, the, uh, Morrison was a, a great actor of the presidency. Uh, he understood the theater of public life. And when he set off um, on the tour, 
he felt that maybe it would be inappropriate for the President of the United States to dress in um, military uniform. I mean, he was no longer a commander. He resigned his commission. And so he had a really, really nice set of business suits made. Um, uh, and we have pictures of him, well, paintings of him. He, 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 knew how, he knew the good stuff. But the American people didn't want to see that. They didn't want to see a businessman president. They wanted to see the commander in chief that had saved our country. And so within about a week of his first tour through New England, he would stop in a town, go back to the wagon run by Paris, and get in and put on his military uniform. And they got him a super looking horse, as you saw there, the white horse, a battle horse, a charger. And he'd go riding into the community. And you can imagine, how would you feel? You're just, you know, you're just sitting on the porch and here comes the president of the United States, the commander in chief on a horse. And uh, it, it was all powerful, powerful politics. Yeah. Uh, yes, hi. Um, I was wondering uh, what, um, after doing all your research, uh, your opinion would be this country would be like or would have developed if George Washington had not made this trip or had been killed. What sort of a country would have came out? Because you did talk about the provincialism and the states and the demagogues and right. so forth. What kind of country do you think would have developed had he not made this trip? Well, it's, it's always hard for historians to, to say, but um, uh, he, he was certainly the most trusted public individual that I think our country has ever seen. And uh, I think some of the fragmentation uh, that he feared would, would have occurred faster. He did not understand political parties. And so the later divisions that separated the Jeffersonians and the Hamiltonians and whatnot, Washington would have thought was a disaster. He hated, he hated that kind of uh, political bickering. Um, so uh, my, my guess is much of what happened would have happened, but maybe less, less quickly or more quickly if he had, uh, it was uh, crossing um, a river a few miles outside of um, Mount Vernon, when uh, someone uh, who's on a barge crossing one of the rivers uh, down there, um, and then something spooked the horses, and they 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 pulled everything off of the you know the uh, the barge. And if it hadn't been for so many people in small boats and tourists and spectators that they rescued the situation, it was it was really tough going. But Washington was a courageous man, and he never put his own personal safety before that of the welfare of our country, not once. Uh, my assumption is that this was pretty laborious travel. Um, how much ground was he able to cover in, say, a day or a week? Well. In the southern trip, he mapped it out very carefully. He actually called it his southern campaign. Uh, and he told Jefferson and Hamilton that what, uh, where he would be uh, in uh, uh, Georgetown, Charleston, uh, you know, the southern cities, all the way around to Charlottesville, and um, um, I mean, uh, Charlotte and uh, um, Salem, so on. 
on a good day with good roads, they could make 70 miles. But on the bad days, uh, like the sandy roads of South Carolina, they finally went over. They, they, they couldn't, the horses couldn't take the roads because they kept their hooves kept sinking into the, the dust. They, they, they took the, and they went over to the beach. Any of you been down to Myrtle Beach, you know those wonderful beaches with their hard packed sand. They, uh, so he rode down towards Georgetown on, on the beach and, and that was good. The horses did better. He lost not a single animal in the whole, whole journey. He was very proud of that. He, 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 there was, he was a, a great equestrian, a great athlete. People uh, overlook that. He was extremely physically coordinated, but he loved his horses, and he took great pride at the end of the journey that both the coach and the horses had made it. Uh, did he have a lot of conversations with uh, commoners, I guess you would say, and if so, did he write anything in his diaries about, I don't know, how it struck him? Well, verbatim conversations, uh, no, but there's a very interesting aspect of this trip that surprised me, and that is um, town after town would put on huge receptions, um, also great parades. He, there were the, this is the rise of the political parade. It's like wonderful. But there would be receptions at night, and there would oftentimes be some dances. Marston was a great dancer. He loved to dance, and he loved women. He loved the company of women. Uh, I think it was a less politically charged moment. And so um, what I discovered over and over from his diary is that the American women in these towns had greater access to Washington than some of their husbands because <laughs> he would dance away the evening with them a couple of times. They toasted him, which was a sign that he should leave the room because it, he was a modest man. They'd say to the, to the chief, and he'd, he'd go. But a couple of times, he'd sneak back in the back door and say, let's, let's party. You know? 